Hey everybody, this is Michael Russell, Film Photography Podcast. It is July 15th, here in the studio with Leslie Lazenby. Hello, pod people. Mark O'Brien. Hello, all our FPP listeners out there around the world. And Mr. Matt Mirage. Hey. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, for most of you know, we have our school donation program. If you go to our filmphotographyproject.com, there's a donate button. And if you go there, uh, it just lists tons of information about what we do, why we do it, the schools that we donate to. We heard recently from uh, our good friend Dan Yeager. Pickerington. Pickerington. In Pickerington. Central High School. Yep. Pickerington High School. And I was thrilled because we really loaded up Dan with many, many 35-millimeter SLR mm-hmm. cameras. But he has so many kids that he we're also sending a, uh, a fleet of 35-millimeter point-and-shoot cameras. And those cameras really do not get much love from, I mean, hmm. None. Doesn't, no, none. they get none. Yeah, they don't. They don't get a lot of love. <laughs> many, many of you listening shoot with them. I shoot with them. I shoot with them. Yeah, uh, but you don't. You don't see a lot of like you know serious blogs or you know YouTube videos delving into point and shoots. But they're good starter cameras for students because uh, Professor Dan and other other teachers can really focus on composition and shooting, and then the the pro, you know processing the film. So Dan has over 350 students just, wow. just in his intro class. That's crazy. It is. Um, he says so many students that we're, we may hire another teacher. Amazing. It is. There's also, in schools, a shortage of 120 cameras. So we set Dan up with a uh, 120. Was that a... Oh, which Yush- one? That was the Yushika. Yushika Matt. Matt 124G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be like Mishika, Yashika, Matt, Matt, Matt. Oh, what? Excuse <laughs> <laughs> um, me. It's great when a student can get their hand on something different—a roll film camera—to kind of, you know, just get the the feel of loading is so different. He, so. he has some students that just really, really gravitate to this, and he is always trying to. He keeps feeding them with new stuff, such as great, you want to try this out, and it's going to be medium format, and they just are wild about it. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic system. Fantastic system in the school that they allow him to do this, and he is an amazing instructor and teacher. And thank you for all the support, uh, folks listening, who have donated to the program. It's fantastic. You have any shout-outs, Matt? Oh, man. Mike, we have a bunch of shout-outs. Ready, ready for the list? Yeah. All right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We have, yes, in no particular order, yes, Mary Daly, Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you, Pat Tyson from Parts from Unknown. Parts Unknown. <laughs> big thank, big, big, big thanks for his what? What at last I counted was a six-part shipment from John Wineland in Southbury, Connecticut. Ellen Stepnuski in Yakima, Washington. Cynthia Derrick, Parts Unknown. Parts Unknown. Michael Migliaccio. Migliaccio? Yeah, sorry. Michael Migliaccio, Manchester, New York. Gail Hearing, Columbus, North Carolina. Jennifer Miller, Dixon. Dixon Lou. Kip Kurzman, Forest Hill, Maryland. Shirley from New York. Annie and Rich Isley, Hesperia, Michigan. And Deborah Scott from La Canada, California. And this this group is just a small group. Of many, of many, and thank you very much. It's 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 a very satisfying program, and you know we stay in touch with the teachers, and the teachers sometimes will you know email me a paragraph too about what the class is doing, sends pictures, and it's 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 you know it's heartwarming to see uh, young people uh, developing film. This is from Stuart Skalka. It says it's pronounced like Alka-Seltzer. So how would that be? Stuart Skalka? Skalka. Like Alka-Seltzer. Skalka. He said, I enjoyed your videos about the joys of 4x5, in particular the Graflex, which was a two-part video that we did. Very very popular video series, yes. I rarely shoot with a normal focal-length lens. Mostly I use wide and ultra-wide. I shot these pics, we can't see them here, using 
Fuji Superior 1600 and Natura 1600. Both discontinued. I've shot the Natura 1600. It's an excellent film. 12 millimeter and 50 millimeter Voigtlander lenses and Joe Mama Besser tees. <laughs> I invested all our money in consolidated Fujiyama, California smog bags. He says, do you know the Cambo Wide 650? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. And then he says, have you bought from Roberts? <laughs> Get out of here, Roberts. Uh, P.S. I don't think I ever shot with Pan X when it was made, but I just started using McFun's Tonality. What's that? Oh, it's a photo, It's an add-in. You can. Do, it's like a, a filter. Okay. I really like using Pan X preset. Is he talking about Ditch? <gasps> yeah. Oh yeah, those yeah. are um, post-processing. Yeah, the, what, what do they call those? Not add-ons. Um, not macros. Presets. Presets. Pre- yeah, thank, presets you. Yeah. thank you. Thank you. But he, then he says, "I was really disappointed when I saw that FPP sold out of Pan X." And I was talking about film. Pan X, of course, is Panatomic X. Uh, I purchased uh, probably from eBay, like mm-hmm. a little batch. That lasted us a few years, and then it was gone. I mean, it was old, yeah. but doesn't matter. It, it holds up so well. I shot something, Pan X. It was 40 years old. Yeah. Uh, this is from our good friend Shaq Mahdi. Hey. Mike Sherman. And uh, just some canon love since, you know, everyone's shooting Nikon now. Oh, lots of Nikon on, love lately. It'll be okay, Mike. Oh, Leslie, tell me you're not shooting Nikon. F3. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and? I'm going to shut your guys' you mics see? off. I'm just going to read <laughs> Mike Sherman and I just going to hang out the, here. I'm going to shoot the EOS yeah, you do. A2. You do have a cannon in your hand. I have a cannon in my hand right now, so didn't even bring a knife. He said, I just wanted to share a video with you in case you haven't seen it. This guy before, he does very nice reviews of film cameras. This one's on the Canon FX. Um, I don't have the username, so I can't tell you who it is, but I guess if you search Canon FX in YouTube, you'd find it. Uh, he gives a little history. Uh, Mike says, I recently started buying Canon FTB cameras. Mm-hmm. Good for you, Mike. I'm with mm-hmm. you. Cameras. I own two of them. And wanted to find another camera that have f- similar features from the same era. The Canon TX and Canon FX are both neat. Oh, I like that. And the FX was the first to take the FL mount lenses. So, folks listening, Mm -hmm. these um, 1964 era SLR cameras had the uh, Canon FL mount lens, which then morphed into what's known as Canon FD lenses. Mm -hmm. So, if you own the Canon SLR that took FL, the FL and the FD, they swap back and forth. Of course, FL lenses don't have the A auto, so you can't use them right. in like an AE-1 on auto mode. But the lenses are interchangeable. So if you bought all your FL lenses, you can use them on your Canon AE-1 as well. He says uh, the Canon um, FX has light meter, pretty, pretty great for 1964. And then he says, you're a big Canon fan, right? And when I printed this out, I thought, yeah, I'm the only Canon fan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, got to the point where I texted Matt. I'm like, hey, Matt, you know, he shot a promo pic of the FPP t-shirt. I'm like, uh, what did you shoot this with? He's like, oh, Nikon FM2. And he's like, sorry, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> if you know of some other fave pre-AE1 era cameras, it might be an interesting topic. Perhaps I'll do a little blog about the 60s SLR from major players. And he says, thanks for the great shoe and all the good stuff in the store. Take care. Mike Sherman, a.k.a. Shaq Mahdi, on Flickr and Instagram, S-H-A-K-M-A-T-I. Mike? Yes? The FTBQL is an excellent SLR. It is. And I have shot, and and the Canon A1 is an excellent SLR. It's up there with a Nikon uh, F3, I believe, in my own mind. Got rid of all yours? I went through a phase where I, I went through lots of Canons over this period of like four or five years. Yes, Matt, you have the floor. Oh, thank you. You know what the F is a good uh, good Canon? What? The Canon F. The F. Canon F. <gasps> yeah. That is a sweet, the, when you get Canon the, F1. The, the nice matte black finish. I mean, that is a tank. Yeah. Yeah. 
every time those come in a Midwest photo, guaranteed they work. And what is this the Super EOS that we had our hands on today? What is that called? Oh, now that's not we're into the future now. We're into the future. This is, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. This is your EOS 1. Well, you have the 1V HS, the really fast one. And then this was a 1N with the standard speed grip on it. These are for folks. These are for professionals shooting sports, right? Sports and not FPP hand-rolled films. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and biceps. They've got to have biceps because those oh, yeah. puppies are heavy. Yeah. They really are meaty. Uh, so those are my, my quick letter topics. Um, let's, uh, Mark O'Brien, what do you have? We'll turn the floor over to Mark O'Brien. Well, I was thinking of doing a little camera review. Oh, what do we got? Well, I thought I would talk about, we talked a little bit briefly, we talked about point and shoots, right? Yeah. Before we actually had that the point-and-shoot craze that we had back in the 80s and 90s. We had the, the equivalent of a point-and-shoot of the, of the day would have been the Minolta Hymatic G. Mm-hmm. And it's in a class of small 35-millimeter cameras that basically all have about a 38-millimeter lens, a 1.28 maximum aperture. They have a little a CDS cell in the front of the, the lens ring. Uh, you set your aperture in the front on the lens in the front of the lens as well. They usually have zone focusing. The ISOs go usually from about 25 to 400, so it's a fairly middling um, set of requirements. But there were a lot of cameras made during the the 70s that filled that niche of a of a fairly uh, small camera that was you could take anywhere with you. Minolta, of course, had a lot of rangefinders, um, and as did a bunch of other companies, Canon and Nikon and Pentax had a few. Um, but Minolta had, certainly had, should we say, a plethora of, of small rangefinders. But the Minolta Hymatic G isn't necessarily a rangefinder; it's a, a zone focus. It's simple to use, and my big beef with a lot of the Minolta um, Hymatics over the years was. They were unreliable. After, I mean, they're, now they're probably, what, going on 50 years old, some of these cameras, but most are in their 40s, perhaps. Are those bigger, the ones you talk, the older ones? The older ones, yeah. That's pretty small, the one in your but hand. The one I have is pretty small. It, it's, uh, it's fairly light. It fits in the palm of your hand, pretty much. The format, you know, it's a standard 24 by 36 millimeter frame size. Um, it has a hot shoe. Hot shoe. Sure, what shoe? And it's all, but the only the down the only down point of this camera, which makes it more of a point and shoot, it's totally automatic. Mm. You don't choose, you can't choose your oh. shutter speed. You can't choose, only thing you, the only control you really have is choosing your ISO. And that's pretty much it. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> There's not, no, it's, it, like I said, it's a point, it's the equivalent of a point and shoot. If you think about the Olympus Trip, which I think is my favorite so-called point and shoot, um, it's not terribly different from that, although I don't think it's as good a, as good a camera as the trip. The uh, Hymatic G um, has has a range of shutter speeds from about uh, one thirtieth of a second to six fiftieth of a second. And another drawback is that it doesn't have a B mode, which is I find oh. kind of useful if you want to take some, <clears throat> do some night shooting with it. And the uh, apertures range from uh, f two point eight to f fourteen, so it's. It's a. Uh, it's not necessarily a great little camera, but it's not a bad one if you find one that's working. And that's always been my knock on some of the Hymatics over the years. Um, but why wouldn't they work? Um, electronics issues. Oh. Um, and they and they re- do require a battery. Um, originally, they required a, a mercury cell, but I've just been popping silver cells in these things, and they work just fine. There's a difference between 1.3 volt, 1.5 volt. Exactly. It's like, don't sweat it, yeah. folks home. Don't overthink this stuff. Don't, don't get the film sweats. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> I shot, I, um, last fall, I, I ended up getting somehow two different Hymatic Gs, and I cleaned them up, and both worked perfectly fine. So, And one came into the FPP donations, and I opened up that one, put a battery in, and it worked just fine. So three out of three lately, so that's, that's pretty good. So um, I would recommend it if you want to uh, have a camera that's relatively um, free of having to, to do much with in terms of, of control except uh, 
dial in where your what your subject is going to be mountains group of people Head and shoulders or headshot, you know, mm-hmm. that's about it. It's for the typical uh, range. That that's why to. you're calling that a point and shoot. Yeah, that's why I call it a point and shoot. The only thing it, you're adjusting it, yeah. since it's not an autofocus, yeah. right? I mean, most of the point and shoots in the in the 80s were autofocus. So right. um, that that's when that whole era really started. But um, in terms of a relatively uh, halfway decent camera, I mean, I've shot about three or four rolls of film on this thing, and they all look good. It's, it's one you might want to consider if you're looking to have something to stick in your camera bag for something different. Terrific. Be a great street camera, wouldn't it? It yes. would be, yeah. And, I, and I, that's how I've shot with it. It's a, yeah. it's a street camera. The other thing, you know, it does have a hot shoe, so you can put a flash on there. And you put a small flash, and you're going to be good to go. And what is the lens? It's a, it's a, it's a, a Rockor 1.28 um, maximum aperture, 38-millimeter lens. 38-millimeter lens. So it's, it's right in there. I mean, Ryko had, had some of those, um, and uh, there's a bunch. And they're all in that same sub- Below 40 millimeters, but not really wide. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Mark. You're welcome. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. Come to the honeycomb hideout. I'm Big Betty the Blonde Bomber, and I want a big cereal. Honeycomb's big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not small. No, no, no. Honeycomb's got a big, big bite. Big, big taste in a big, big bite. Right. A good breakfast featuring post honeycomb cereal gives you a big, big bite. It tastes right. Honeycomb bite. It tastes right. Hey, we're back. So, Matt or Leslie? Ooh. Who wants the floor? Do I know? Is mine a lead into yours? Mr. Mirage yields the floor to Miss Lazenby. Okay, great. And uh, not before you past the Kentucky Mountain Moonshine Truffles. Time to wake this show up. So this one is going to be black and white sees color and then it'll blend into you? Yeah. Oh, yes. There'll be quite a bit of blending. It will be. Sir, is that Whoa. This is a little long, but it's a little educational. What is the topic? This is black and white sees color. How or, black and white sees color? But it's, it's black the difference and white. between ortho, pan, and monochrome. Matic. And with a secret little no kidding in there for us ladies. Okay. And some of you men. I guess I was going to say, does it matter? Does it really matter? But when you start getting into like um, a blue sensitive That's or certain types cover. of, yeah. if you go out and you put a certain filter over your camera, then all That's of a sudden you're like, oh, what happened? Take it away, Leslie. Now, it's, this is like referred in here, exactly that. You'll like it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think. You'll eat more feed some more of those. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Black and white film sees color. Well, of course it sees color. The type of black and white film determines the areas of the spectrum that they reproduce and how much of it they see. Oh, that sounds all complicated. But not all are sensitive to the same wavelengths of light. Example, a person with red lipstick on. Those luscious red lips on black and white can be anywhere from light gray mm-hmm. to black. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. You got it. Oh, dang it. So I'm going to talk about orthochromatic versus panchromatic mm-hmm. and monochromatic. And they throw these terms at you sometimes on film boxes. Yes. And uh, some are interchangeable slightly. Some are not. Early black and white films were orthochromatic. They were blue or green sensitive. Mm-hmm. I can never remember when it says it's blue or green sensitive. Is that going to be good on my film, bad on my film? And I'll tell you a little way to remember it later on. But they are blue or green sensitive. They did not, nor do they now, see the entire spectrum well. This was a big problem in the early movie industry. They had orthochromatic film to shoot on. Oh, the Blue. certain makeup they had. Max Factor. You're jumping my oh, gun here, sorry. Buzz. <laughs> I'll be quiet. Back up. Okay. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> anyway, in the, it was, this was a big problem in the early movie industry. Blue skies photographed too light. White. Yeah. They were, yes, exactly. Skin tones were too dark. Mm-hmm. Cinematographers used little small bluing, blue filters, in fact, just to get an idea of how the world was going to look to them on their final product. It allowed them, at that point, also to choose 
colors of clothing that ended up photographing well on orthochromatic film, how the entire set would reproduce. They would then at times use some lens filters, they chose careful locations, and they had to do makeup to help control these levels of gray and how they reproduced. To give them more freedom when shooting people, they used makeup. Mm -hmm. They could not use Stage makeup. It did not work. Stage makeup's meant to match skin tones. The solution fell into the hands of hiring a professional makeup artist. They used talc or lead mixed in a oil base. Thus, it got the name grease paint to lighten up skin. Mm -hmm. Early orthochromatic films did not see red. You put a red filter on it. You got blank negatives. Squat. You got nothing. <laughs> In fact, no exposure for you. Mm-hmm. No but exposure for you. No exposure for you. <laughs> no exposure for you. <laughs> but it allowed them to load their cameras under red light mm-hmm. and process by inspection. Yes. So there were some advantages to that orthochromatic film and that red light limitation. An early... Um, Panchromatic developer, a German chemist named Hermann Vogel, found out that by adding dyes to some film emulsions, he could extend their sensitivity into seeing films black and white that saw all shades. He called them panchromatic, eventually meaning that panchromatic films in our minds, and that's how he wanted it to be known, was uh, films that saw all colors and reproduced them accordingly. A blue sky was a shade of gray rather than white. Still photography had the advantage of panchromatic films and plates as early as 1906. Mm-hmm. Most of our general films today for black and white are panchromatic. They may not even say that on the box. Most of sometimes them don't they Sometimes they don't. Um, they don't. They, you just assume. It's the norm. Yep. Even in our panchromatic films, some of them have wavelengths. They see wavelengths differently they than preferences. Generous. They yeah. do, yes. I always loved to use Agva's black and white film that was panchromatic. It pulled a little bit more out of our not always blue Ohio skies. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful film for that. We also have films um, that are specially made, even though they're panchromatic, to see different shades of green. And those films um, are looking for vegetation differences. If you're getting my wink here from the sky when they fly over, photographing fields, oh, that's not just wheat down there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So anyway, the the movie industry, though, did not change over to panchromatic quickly. The the, The cost was three to four times as much. They had that limitation that the first time they loaded it in the red light in the dark room did not realize they were going to have to do a reshoot. Oh. You see, so mm-hmm. and also too, when they did use the panchromatic, there again, we've got a whole different way of looking with this and how our actors look and everything else. So Eastman Kodak, where I where have you been, Eastman? Here we come. Eastman Kodak created a special order panchromatic film. In 1913, that was a movie film. S.O., Special Order. Yes, <laughs> S.O. Mm-hmm, S.O. 279. And it was originally used for the additive movie picture production. Do you know what that is, Mike? No. Shooting with different color black and white filters for grays, then throwing color filters over them later for projection to get oh. a nice color. We'll get there. We'll get there. We Oh, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. More on this later. Mm-hmm. Cameramen began to use this as a standalone, especially when they were shooting the outdoor scenes. So they'd just shoot some panchromatic and everything else on ortho. Panchromatic cinefilm was then used exclusively to shoot an entire movie in 1922. Anybody know what it is? Classic. Uh. Do you well, know? Class- 1922. Is Charlie Chaplin involved? I, I don't believe he was. Mm. Birth of a Nation? No. Nope. Oh. But still, kind of in the genre in our local FPP compound here, The Headless Horseman. Ah! 
Oh, yeah, you don't the know first full pan chromatic. And I just, huh. I think, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll mention that. Took a while for the industry to completely change over. But in 1930, Kodak said, orthochromatic movie film, yeah, out of here. Don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, one great leap in one industry causes great leaps in others. Let's go back to grease paint. Okay. Powder, grease paint powder. Makeup artist now had to tint these because now we need our skin tones to be natural on this panchromatic film. So call this guy up, this this um, makeup guy, and his name's Max. That's right. That's Max. His name was Max Factor. Damn right. <laughs> his new makeup line was developed for panchromatic films, and the actors and actresses love this stuff. And they said, Max, hey. I got a little party I'm going to this weekend with Max Sennett. Can you mix me up a little batch of this and I take it home and wear it? This is great stuff. Max says, I got you covered in more ways than one. And uh, he developed a product called Pan Stick. Pan Stick is still available today. Really? Now, Max Factor no longer has presence here in the United States, but we've got eBay on our side. And it's... Uh, I've used pan stick off and on for many years. When I think about it, go grab some. It's it's great stuff. Max knew what he was doing. But but look what the movie industry did to make Max factor an industry standard. Trickle down. Great thing. Side note. Whatever. <laughs> but today we have orthofilm, mm-hmm. x-ray, blue and green, yep. considered in the ortho family. Mm-hmm. Panchromatics. We have IR. We've got that blue sensitive and red sensitive films available. Now, the sense, as I said, the sensitivity thing kind of bothers me. I, I never remember. So I now have to think of sensitivity like a food sensitivity. Take a peanut. Okay? Where's our can of peanuts? I've got a peanut. Great. Shake it around. Peanuts. I got one peanut. Put in it. Take a peanut. By, well, look at that. You're panchromatic. You don't have any problems. No. Take a peanut sensitivity. You react stronger if you have a sensitivity to peanuts and you eat one. I'm not yes. talking allergy because that's like putting a red filter. You get nothing. <laughs> You're flatlining, buddy. But take a peanut sensitivity. It reacts stronger than you think it would. So if a film is blue sensitive, mm-hmm. sensitive, the word blue, anything that's blue is going to be more active on your negative. That means darker. When you print it or make it a positive, it's going to be lighter, mm-hmm. not the shade of gray that you were looking for. So red sensitive, anything that is red becomes more active on the film, on the negative portion, becomes lighter. lighter on the positive. So when you see those terms, if there's specifically one that says, and we've sold here blue sensitive films, you kind of know how it's going to shift this spectrum in your final image. So we've got one last little thing to throw in here, which is being used a lot today, and it's called mono or monochromatic. And it's, that's a different term. That is not panchromatic. Mm-hmm. Mono means one, simply means single, having or consisting of one color or hue. In this case, they're referring to a shade of gray. Mm-hmm. So mono can be panchromatic, but not necessarily. We can think of um, Polaroid's original film. Some people refer to that, you know, the magenta, the cyans, those. They're not technically monochromatic. They're a duochromatic. And, yes. and they do represent them like that because they're throwing a black base in and then everything else the is in guy. that color, shades of color. So it's, it's you think, oh, this doesn't affect me today. Well, it does. But today... All films in black and white are monochromatic, but not all monochromatic are panchromatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoo. We, I think we see the term monochromatic today a lot more because it's more e- easily recognized. Also it sounds nicer. It, well, it, it, it does. Uh, well, I don't know. Got, got some mono here. Some black um, and white. When, when technically they do mean panchromatic, but I think, too, it's used, it's more of a I don't want to say a dig term. It is a dig term. But it is yeah. a dig term. Yeah, well, like and so a, a it's monochrome. a monochrome. Yeah. Right. It, it explains it to everyone. But, but there you have it. That's what we've gone through. We still have orthochromatics to use. Mm-hmm. We still have many panchromatics. 
monochromatics. And talking all, no, I don't. Th I think we're going to hold that. I think right now, that's a pretty good history on black and white, mm -hmm. what we've dealt with. But what I didn't cover was color has seen its own changes. Yes, see. Matt. I, you know anything about that? I've. My well, head is spinning. <laughs> sure is. As a, oh, real quick, as yeah. a black and white shooter. Yeah. Do you need to worry about this? Yes. I no, do. Uh, yeah. if, all right, so here's, I'll break it down. Yeah, break it down. Break all right. it down. Ready. Ooh, 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 ooh. If you look at the box and the box. you're like, what the hell is this? And it doesn't say, it's probably panchromatic. Okay. Right. Tri-X. Tri yeah. Panchromatic. Old, and, and the old TX was TXP, which just said Tri-X Pan. Yes. Every time you see yep. Pan. Pan. Panchromatic. Um, it doesn't have to say pan to be panchromatic. Now, if it's orthochromatic, most times, almost all of them will say ortho somewhere in the name yep. yeah. on there, or will say orthochromatic on the box. When it's a monochrom, well, when it's a uh, single sensitivity, it will say blue sensitive or oh. red sensitive only. Um, that's that's how you know that. So if it's a specialty, it will say its sensitivity. If it's not a specialty, it's panchromatic, but it's their kind of different flavor of it. Mm -hmm. The specifics. If you want to see the exact curves and sensitivity and stuff, that's always in the data sheet. Sure. So yep. best way to find out more about your film, you know, Google this film, comma, the Google tech sheet or data sheet, and you'll always find a PDF that's downloadable from the manufacturer. Right. You know, the, the current Cosmo, Cosmo yes. Photo, mm -hmm. they actually use the mono just to Cosmo Photo Mono is the name mm -hmm. of that film. They're using that. It pulls in the ditch. You, to tell you right away, yeah. What are and they telling me? They're telling you it's a black and white film. Yeah. It's Ooh. mono. So. And if you see the word lith in the title, oh, it's, it's probably ortho. It's probably ortho. ortho film. Uh -huh. Like Cotolith is not sensitive to red, which makes it great to develop by inspection in a dark room. Mm -hmm. Matt? Matt. What? <laughs> you transitioning into color? Could you uh, throw a little oh, color, yes. color in our world? So I am. You know, this year's been kind of a wild year. Um, I've spent pretty much the last five years doing almost nothing but, but black. I shoot like Polaroid. That's my color. Everything else has mostly been black and white because of affordability. 8x10 is expensive. I do have a little bit of color squirreled away, but I've been playing around with and uh, playing around with early color. So um, if we go way, way back, the way color originally happened, when there was plates, like wet plates, glass plates, pre-film, a lot of plates would get hand-colored. Daguerreotypes, wet plates, dags, all those. Those would get hand-colored for families to be kind of a specialty deal. The next thing that folks did to add color in, um, and this was doable, it was doable with orthochromatic. It was kind of a weird uh, process of elimination thing they could do. They could use a series of red, green, and blue filters for multiple exposures or each negative. That was, called, that was the beginning of what was called the additive color process, and Leslie kind of hinted at that in, uh, in her black and white topic. Now, there was a color still wasn't really popular, except a lot of work, Mike. Yeah. Three shots, different filters. You got to remember what they are. Colors. So those were called color separation negatives. Those are still used for different alternative photographic processes, like gum bichromate dye transfer. Also, very hard processes to use. It wasn't until these crazy brothers came around in the turn of the uh, turn of the 20th century, the brothers Lumiere, who made a beautiful, beautiful process that they called the autochrome. And the autochrome was a panchromatic sensitized plate that had a a very small pattern, a little almost a stipple pattern of random potato starch and in that starch were imbued a few different color dyes, microscopic on this plate. Wow. You'd expose the plate, it was way way not sensitive because there was these all these little colored filters so essentially um a layer of colored filters over a panchromatic film now we all know what happens when we place different regular colored filters over panchromatic film you have a filter factor and you have different uh different values represented as a result of that filter so this was that on the microscopic level you send the plate back to them now now we're kind of like we're adding multiple things. I went, remember when I showed you guys those black and white slides mm -hmm. a couple shows uh, a couple shows back, and I said there's an additive thing to this. So 
essentially what the autochrome plate was, was a black and white reversal plate that also had a color filter array in there. And when it was viewed back, uh, when it was backlit with white light, so viewed like a slide, through that colored filter, the, the tiny microscopic levels would give you the illusion of color. That was essentially the early color process. The autochrome plates were gorgeous. And what makes them different from, so I have an example of an autochrome plate so Mike can stay in. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all be entertained, but Mike especially, he's been, he's nodding off. Your head spinning. But the autochrome, chrome, the autochrome color process color is process gorgeous. Is and what makes it gorgeous is the same thing that makes all film gorgeous. It's imperfect. It has these imperfections. They're very dim kind of plates. They can't be, because of the potato starch and the weaker dyes, the proprietary dyes that were in there, um, they they don't last very long out in you know out in the world, um, so they have to be very 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 carefully preserved. But one could essentially recreate this pro- essentially not exactly because I've seen forums and stuff of people trying to recreate this process exactly. It it could be very dangerous because there's essentially what you have to do is dust a plate. Oh. So getting a microscopic pattern of these particles and dyes it's it could be bad for your lungs yeah. to try and make these plates yourself after brothers lumiere um one of the more commercially available processes um was dufay color yes the dufay color and the dufay colors color. um yeah. used a process um which was a manufactured screen or as the french called it a réseau so a réseau was essentially a um, a printed screen Ooh. of these microscopic little um, rays of red, green, and blue. And the patterning of those little dots of red, green, and blue gave you a different color look. So, so a Dufay color would look different from all these other different early color processes. Do you think, I had old customers that claimed that they dabbled in that. Do you think that could have been a home process? Um, if you had the uh, uh, the ability to do screen prints or to screen make your own screen, your own screen could be essentially okay. your own color process. Because these, lo- these were codgers, I'll tell you. And they as, probably as long but- as you could do black and white reversal and you had the ability to create screens, you could do your own color additive color process. Okay. The downside about additive color is. You have to have a color screen, and you have to be able to black and white process. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, of course, like completely wiped out when Kodak started rolling out, you know, um, subtractive color processes, which is are which are the current films. Those are imbued with dyes that that inhibit different amounts of exposure on them, and then they have that processed back in. That's far more consistent color-wise. So oh, yeah. what makes these processes different is their additive color, but that additive color um, has its own kind of color biases. I have printed out for everyone's example, and we can pass these around. We can Ooh. show them up in the show notes. I have created my own fun little réseaux on a transparency film. This is Pictorico, OHP. But this is essentially a Rizzo, a very, very fine screen. And Ooh, that's you, some loop you got there, man. You Matt. cannot see anything until you put he a 10x looping. or more loop up to it. Where'd you get that loop? Uh, it's from 8x10. I want it back. Uh, <laughs> but what you can see, very, very, very small, are tiny little pixels. And those little pixels on there are each. So I actually had to go into Photoshop. Oh, photo, I did. And I've actually created different Rizzos based on um, different color processes. So uh-huh. Oh. Essentially, the an earlier version of Lumiere's kind of screen would have this. Well, actually, the the color bias that Mark's looking through—that's the Rizzo. Give you a little white screen here. Oh yeah. And you can see the at the pixel level that they are different little colors. Um, I also have one. This is what our Digi looks like. All digital sensors. If you take off the uh, the lens, they have this teal kind of look, and that's because they are more green biased. There's two greens for every other. Uh, for every red and uh, like red and blue, there's this a green. One. Now you like digital, then, Leslie. I like green. Can't get a shot. No, if you like green, of you what? would like you would like what the col- what the. Oh, here, let me fire up my little. This is essentially a Fuji X Trans sensor because it's even more green sensitive oh, wow. than that. Do you see the, see the pixel level of them though? Easier in that one than this one, but oh, there it is. 
that's what the bear pattern looks like. All right, and then here is here's the Fuji X-Trans pattern. So a Fuji digital sensor okay. would have even more large, you see the, the green clumps there are larger than they are on the other one. Yes. yes, so that's a more green sensitive film. Wow. So, all right, podcast listeners that can't see what we're seeing right now. Here's your loop. I have, if your head is spinning. Here's your loop. Yes, which it's fine if it is. Um, Here's your loop. Why don't these color processes... <laughs> give, that, give me that back. <laughs> the reason why these early color processes aren't around anymore is because, oh my God, there's so much that goes into it. But that's also why they have this signature look. They all were slightly, the autochromes especially, they were all slightly different. They were all specialty plates, proprietary process, proprietary dyes. But one fun yeah. thing about them, added, uh, additive color versus subtractive color does have its advantages. Additive color, when you're shooting people with uh, very different skin tones, especially darker complexions, um, that whole photography and film photography is inherently racist. Um, it's kind of true with the negative processes. Mm -hmm. um, with the additive color processes, it's more favorable to darker complexions. So if, when you look at early, uh, early photography that involves uh, a lot of people from different countries, different races, you will see much, much more favorable skin tones um, in those. So it's, it's a really neat process. It really, really slows down your film. Um, oh, sure. I've run, a, I've run a light meter up to these filters because, of course, I have. Um, <laughs> And these add anywhere from about three to, uh, to five stops on a film. So any panchromatic emulsion that had this in front of it, you're going to need a freaking tripod. Of course. Yeah. Right. Get a freaking so tripod. So Kodachrome is an additive process. And that's what makes it beautiful. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a very technological additive process. A very It was the oh, most technically yes. advanced yeah. additive it was process. Yes. Kooky. Yeah. If you... See online like um, an eight by ten of a classic star like Lucille Ball, and you see this like rich, beautiful color. Pro I'm guessing eight by ten Kodachrome. A ridge, yeah. Well, I'm I'm looking up a, a, a I'm referencing a blog post. So apparently Kodachrome uh, was uh, was a further development um, that used um, an even more intricate color pack called a tri pack. Um, the, the integral tripack system uh, on there, but that was in '35 when Kodachrome was there. Reached Great Britain by '37. And it was Ag for Color before that. So if it wasn't Kodachrome, it was probably Ag for Color. Right. That went there. I've got some Autochromes at home in a box, Ooh. and they're they're four by fives. They're done in some botanical garden somewhere, and, and they really are very nice. And they're just like this. If you don't see them, if you just see them front lit and not back lit, what it looks like is it has this kind of purplish grayish. Um, it's uh, and it looks like a suede right. almost, but it's very dark. And once you properly backlight it, that's when it lights up. The other thing, if you look at the old. Um, Polar color, the the instant slides you oh, can yes. make. Yes, it's the same thing. You look at those really closely, and there are a series of red, green, blue. Oh, really? Um, yes. S stripes. They're actually kind of wedges. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're like this, but uh, the, yeah, the dufe is uh, yeah. So it's a screen. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how what you think is really an advanced process isn't really all that much more advanced than, than okay. autochromes. Yes. Okay, Mike. Yes. Now, wrapping this up, why the hell does this matter? <laughs> Matt, why does this matter? So, if you look at, well, we can use the same, no, I'm not going to pass this loop around because screw you guys. Uh, <laughs> all, your, all of our dig stuff, yes. our digital screens, our devices, projectors, televisions, if you hold a close enough loop or microscope on a digital screen, we are not seeing color. You are seeing additive color by the culmination of like you know, the mosaic of red, green, and blue right. pixels firing on and off. That's what's happening. Uh, if you take like a two-to-one macro lens and you just put it on a TV screen, you will see the individual array. I thought they were like in a little triangle. No, they're just right next to each other. Red, green, blue, red, green, blue. They just perfectly stacked. Wow. It's pretty cool. So um, everything that we see color-wise, these early color processes, especially the additive processes, paved the way. These weren't possible until... Well, they weren't 
very easy to do until panchromatic films became available, but not even a year after the introduction of commercial panchromatic films, boom, we already had color. That's how eager photographers were to see the world the way they saw it. And uh, who knows, there might be some crazy ones of us trying out these early color processes and making Mm -hmm. big old sheets of it. Sheets? Sheets. Wow. I'll just stir up some grease paint. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt. It's been fun. That was very enlightening. Yes. If you have any, if you have any questions, podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. Send it over. I'll forward it right to Matt. Oh. Uh, or Leslie. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. What else we have on stacked for this show? Anybody want a Coca-Cola? Split no. A Coke. Thank you. Split a Coke. A split a Coke. Okay. Uh, I actually titled this sec- segment, Doctor Heal Thyself. <laughs> <laughs> Because sometimes you are the patient. I have been doing, over the past three or four months, a lot of film testing. And all at once, I started to find not only film testing, uh, sometimes I shoot general stuff to use a general uh, developer with. So I've got a grip. i got my base. Mm -hmm. And I have started to find some inconsistencies in my standard film and chemistries. Mm. Mm, Never good. Okay, what do I know about myself? (laughs) Now I have to become the patient. I know the film. I know the camera. I know the developer. And the only thing that's changing is I do use various tanks and reels. Mm -hmm. And then the light bulb came on. I've got a glass that sits on the darkroom that holds four thermometers. Um. Three of them are dial type. One of them is a glass mercury type, my favorite one, but I don't always use it. So I poured off a reasonably warm glass of water, and I put all three of those dial type thermometers in there. They did not read the same. (laughs) No kidding. So what does that mean? And, And it's not uncommon at all for us to be given a box of darkroom equipment. So it looks like a perfectly good thermometer in here. You don't throw it out. You keep it. Put it in with the stack. I recommend if you're using more than one thermometer, rate them against each other. Stack. Uh, stack them up. I got a medical thermometer. Pretty sure it's pretty accurate. Temperature within its gauge or range, I should say. And I put all three of those thermometers in there, and I end up throwing two of them out. One of them nailed it. The other two did not. So that is my little tiny the doctor heal thyself segment that um, sometimes you just think, you know, this, this turned out better before. This would look better before. You may have been very consistent where your thermometer was not. Mm-hmm. Take a look at it. Back to you, Mikey. Thank you, doctor. You're welcome. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back. March 1st through 7th, 1981. You want circular savings and Pathmark is there. Hundreds of warehouse price reductions and double coupon savings. Double the value on manufacturer's coupons 24 hours a day. Get Pathmark's new circular in your weekend paper or at Pathmark. Hundreds of warehouse price reductions and double coupon savings. We're Pathmark. We're always there. Larry's back from Alaska covering the Pope. His story at 11. Hey, we're back. Just when you thought you were feeling better, yeah. the doctor's back in. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Second opinion. This is patient number eight. Patient number eight says, I've got a roll of bulk film that I purchased, was given, found, it doesn't matter. Ooh. Or I found a pack of... 20 rolls of Triax dated 1975. How do I start testing this? Where do I start testing? Do I just go by half ASA every 10 years? But I don't know if it's been in the heat. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. What do I do? Settle yourself down. Right. Take a deep breath. And here's how we do it. Take a short roll of this. If you're bulk loading, roll a roll of 10. If you're shooting the roll, you only have to shoot a few shots. Start off with, it's not going to be a higher sensitivity. We know that already. Mm-hmm. So if I had an old roll of Tri-X pan, okay. 
I'm going to start off my first exposure. Probably use a tripod. At least the same scene, even light. Keep Don't even. change anything. Yes. All you're going to change is, in this case, your ISO ASA dial. Mm-hmm. Set it. Con- control it. So one factor. Yeah. One factor. Let's set it on 50. Then let's get our proper reading for 50. Mm-hmm. Take a picture. Set it on 100. Do the same thing. 200, 400. If you want to amuse yourself and put it on eight, that's fine, but it, mm-hmm. there's not going to be any reason to go there. And stop. Now, you go into the dark room, or you can send this out to a commercial lab. Someone you trust, yeah. So, exactly. You don't tell them anything because you want to process this Normal. like it is fresh film, like it is fresh 400. And mix up your, get your mono bath out, right. and you're set. <laughs> Whatever your standard developer is that you use, and develop it like it is 400 speed. It's native speed. It's box speed. Then analyze that strip, and that's going to tell you where you should shoot the rest of your rolls of film. If the 50 looks good, Shoot it on 50. You don't have to remember what your new developing time is. It's not new. It's the original developing time. Mark on the box, shoot at 50. You've got it made. That's it. Shoot at whatever looks good, and the world is your oyster. Simple as that. So that's kind of an easy way of doing it as opposed yes. to worrying about push, pull, exactly. all that stuff. Okay, compensate, half this, half that. Get it all done at once. People overthink these things sometimes, sometimes. To the point where they don't make any progress because they're constantly worrying about failure. Matt reads the forums. I'm sure a lot of them drive you crazy. Oh, my God. So, well, here's kind of where I sit on it, Mike, because it, it is it, everybody has their own line for it. Yep. Uh, my line is um, doing, like, too many tests. Yes. Like, this is a base test. Like, yes. this is something you can knock out in one roll of film. It makes infinitely more sense to do that. And no, you're not going to waste the rest of your 100 feet. Now, <clears throat> let's say it's something you have much more limited quantities in. It's where it becomes even more imperative that you get it right with that one or two or whatever it takes. Um, let's say it's a box of expired something. That's the last box. You've only Pantomic got... Atomic X. Yeah, you've got only a few sheets or something to do with it. What do you do then? Split it up. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, find some way to use less of your materials to get that test done right. Because otherwise, you're shooting in the dark. And you're just going through all this this hassle without knowing what's going to happen with it. So I, I'm all about testing when it's like a limited thing. Going, you know, going balls to the wall on it when it's right. like something you can just get another one of. Eh. Yeah. And if you're confused like me, uh, <laughs> when I've done tests, I've shot like, um, I've grabbed Justin or whoever's here. And I made a little card for them to hold. That yeah. said, yes. right the ISO. You're not, if you're not good about taking notes, yes. this way wasn't like, oh, it was the first one, 100 ISO, Brilliant. Was the Excellent. third one, or uh, and the boom, And you there can even is. throw that on a piece of paper and put it in the scene outside. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just excellent, Mike. I mean, it's a test. It's yeah. great. Now, Very for, good point. For those of you that don't like doing tests or anything like that. Get a shot. <laughs> if it's a really old, if it's an old piece of film, Tri-X expired 1973. Yeah, I mean, there's there's my mantra I've always used for anybody shooting black and white film: when in doubt, blow it out. And stupid in HC 110. Oh, that too. Yeah, oh, blow it out. Blow it out one way. Oh, Just so overexposed, exposed. grossly yeah. overexposed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, don't open the back of the door. Like, don't open the door. But yeah. So shoot it at. Let's see. 400, 200, 100, 25, or 50 ISO. Yeah, I'd probably, like 50 would be all right, yeah. But if you have a 30-year-old roll of Pentatomic X, I think you can shoot it at 25 and get away fine. with it quite easily. That that yeah. slow film retains its sensitivity. Oh, it does a little much bit longer. Slow right? film I, I degrades. Probably do. Quite a bit less. For me, I'd probably yeah. do a six, a twelve, a twenty-five, and yeah. a. I've been shooting at twenty-five, and it's been coming out great. This depends on its storage, and you don't always know that's that. That's true. So that's true, and that's why people shouldn't make a big deal. Like I got one roll of this, whatever, Ektachrome expired in nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, the chances uh, are it's really not going to be worth. That's pretty gone. Use it. I would use those rolls for figuring out how your camera works. Yes. Yeah, you know, but I have to tell you, <laughs> I bought bricks of these on eBay, like 30, 40 rolls. This is a Kodak Ektachrome 400, which, as you know, a higher ISO color doesn't look as good. 
expired 1984. Okay. It's pretty old. Yeah. Don't expect it to look good. But, you know, I'd shoot, that, I'd shoot this also 50 ISO. Uh-huh. And... For me, the results were great because I look for that kind of grindy, kind of, you know, uh, grainy color. Mm-hmm. But you're shooting those in box cameras, right? With an offer or with flash? No, I'm shooting these like in my Mamiya oh, M645. Okay. So, but, but I, I get a lot of emails about color because a lot of folks are finding like that sure. old world of, of um, you know, Kodak Gold or. Kodak color, Kodak uh, of Kodak uh, VR color, which was oh, early yeah. '80s. Yes, yeah. Ektar 25. Ektar 25, mm-hmm. um, and it really has to do with the way it was stored. I've had Ektar 25 that has looked great, it looked really great, and then another roll looks like <laughs> it's in a bunch of green mud. grass yeah, clippings. Mud, yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, like you those. said, I mean, in this case where I have many rolls of the same. You do your test, and mm-hmm. then you could have. In my case, if I'm going to put this in the FPP online store, this way I could show the shopper or FPP listener, like, "Hey, this old Xchrome, this is how it's going to look," which is beautiful, I think, yeah. just to see, right? Because then you could plan your shoot or figure out what you're going to shoot, and you know what kind of results you're going to get. True. So. Um, I forgot I was going to share these with Leslie. Oh. Uh, this kind of goes hand in hand with it. I used to sweat this stuff. I, I found some crazy person that had boxes <laughs> of HIE, the good stuff, in 8x10. Um, yep. And it was from a what I thought was a questionable time from 1999. That's pretty old. I mean, that's new for HIE, but that's that's pretty old. I didn't know what I was going to get. Looks better than my freaking Efki. Oh, sure. It looks real, real good. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's sweet. Oh, look at that. And this is just properly stored. Uh, HIE. I'm not sure that no. she really knew. Not even properly stored. Uh, it's got a little bit of granularity to it, but oh. it's HIE. It's a high-speed film, but I mean, it's it's sweet. I can this barely stand it. That is so beautiful. Yeah. Which makes, which is probably going to look a lot better than 35 millimeter blown out too. Yes. Yeah. So sure. The yeah. older but it's going to get grainy. There's going to be a lot the of stuff HIE happening. in 35 was a grain storm to begin yeah, a with. Grain so storm. this stuff is <laughs> but, sweet. Yeah, like just to give give you a <laughs> Let's give you losing little, her words. <laughs> give you a verbal on what he just showed me. It's just stunning. That was really beautiful. It's got the glow. It's got the glow. Yeah, the but not black, too much. The black skies just uh, uh, loving it. I. Don't worry, I've got, I've got 70 more sheets. Do you? I've got some 35, but why did they skip 120? That I'll never know. I don't 35, know. 35, 4x5, five, 8 by 10 just, You know, I... Just like Mike, they were ignoring those 120 people. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were worried people were going to put it in a, yeah, a, a, a camera with a red window in the back, and it would just totally screw them up. I don't know. Packing paper, it might just be too sensitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Well, that that does it for this show. What show? What show? What show? Uh, we're going to have, um, you know, we take our summer break, but we're going to have a bonus episode. <laughs> bonus episode in two weeks. Go ahead. A bonus episode in two weeks uh, on August 1st. And then, of course, that leads right into our big, 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 big. FPP walking workshop. Hey, what size is that workshop going to be? <laughs> Pretty big. All right. Well, we have we we only could uh, maximum uh, m- maximum storage for people is uh, about what one twenty. That's major max. Probably around a hundred. Yeah. Unless you don't if you want don't mind all standing, one twenty five maybe. Yeah. But I mean, we're going to have our first come first serve. Yeah. If you uh, haven't signed up, go to uh, filmphotographyproject.com and see what the status is. Mm-hmm. It's probably so, going to be sold out by the time you see this. That could be. Possible. That It's possible. I don't know. It's been, <laughs> it's been a good few years since we've had anything official. You might have to put a big old tent in the front yard. Matt, I think it's been three years. I can believe it. 2015. Oh, we did one in Finland in 2015, didn't we? 
We did we did Ann Arbor. What year was Ann Arbor? Oh, oh Ann Arbor was 2015. Yeah, and okay. San Clemente was 2015. So it was. It was 2015. And did we do Finlay as well? It was the year before. Oh. Yeah, we did Ann Arbor in October. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Yeah. I can guarantee you. For that one. I can guarantee you it will be warm. Yes. It's Finlay. It will bring be your boots. Humid and warm. Bring your uh, your shorts. And your hip waders. Uh, your Classic safari hat. Family. Your hard helmet. Yep. And all your, uh, what do they used to call it? Uh, not tropical film, but they had a name for film that wasn't affected by humidity. It's not coming to anyone. I didn't even anyone know there was a film that wasn't. Yeah. They had tropical well, cameras. I remember that. But uh, we'll hand out little silica gel packets mm-hmm. if it's an issue. Filmphotographyproject.com is our website. You can write to us, podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. Our official online forum is at flickr.com. Go to the Film Photography Podcast group. On the Facebook, Film Photography Podcast. On the Tumblr. On the Instagram, Film Photography Project on Instagram. Yes. And uh, we'll see you in just two short weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Sleep. 